Connecting life and faith. This is Connections. I don't think this is actually a new problem. I think this has been here for a very long time. I think we know that about the Me Too movement more generally as well. I think what's surprising to us is realizing that this is just as prolific within the Christian church as it is in the secular culture. Headlines have been filled with stories lately of clergy sexual misconduct. It's not a new problem. It's only recently, however, that church officials, congregations, and professional organizations have begun to deal more openly with it. Today, we're joined by Val Hebert. She's the Program Coordinator for Abuse Response and Prevention with MCC. She's also a professor of sociology at Providence University. Today on Connections, Val is going to give us a better understanding of the terms involved in these situations, such as sexual misconduct and sexual abuse. She'll also share with us why we're hearing about it more nowadays and how we as a church can do a better job at preventing it moving forward. It's something that we've been hearing about more and more in the media, sexual misconduct within the church. How do we prevent this from happening? Why is it happening? And why are we hearing more about it nowadays? We're joined today by Val Hebert. She is the Program Coordinator for Abuse Response and Prevention with MCC. She's also a professor of sociology at Providence University. She's going to help us today gain a better understanding. Val, you know, covering Christian news, Unfortunately, more and more, it seems like we're writing stories about um, abuse popping up in churches and specifically sexual abuse. And it's really been rocking um, the Canadian church specifically over the last year or so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, more and more stories coming out. What's going on? Why suddenly this problem or is this a new problem that we're seeing within churches? Uh, well, I don't think this is actually a new problem. I think this has been here for a very long time. I think we know that about the Me Too movement more generally as well. Um, I think what's surprising to us is realizing that this is just as prolific within the Christian church as it is in the secular culture. With this happening as often as it's happening and us hearing about it more and more in the media, why is it so surprising for us every time we hear it? Well, I think... I mean, this is a very broad and general statement, but I think that we like to think that if we're Christians, that means we know how to be better at family. We know how to be better at marriage. Uh, we do a better job of conducting ourselves well morally. And I think part of what surprises us is that that's turning out not really to be true in the sense in which we've carried that. Maybe help us understand um, a couple of the terms that we've been hearing a lot of lately, especially with the latest case involving uh, pastor or former pastor Brooksy Cavey at the meeting house. Sexual misconduct is how um, that case was first presented to us as the church. What is sexual misconduct and how does that differ from, let's say, sexual abuse? Well, that, I mean, language is important. Misconduct could include something like an affair where there's mutual consent. Once we're using the word abuse, then uh, we're now talking about exploitation of someone. So I would say that that's the primary difference between those two terms. So talking about, you know, you mentioned consent in misconduct and something we heard a lot from people when this story specifically first came out was, 
well, it sounds like there was consent on both parties. So he didn't do anything wrong. Tell us why, uh, when it involves clergy, um, that no, that's just, that's misconduct. That's sexual misconduct. Mm-hmm. Explain that to us. Uh, well, first of all, I don't want to comment specifically on the Bruxy sure. KB case because we, we didn't conduct that investigation. So it's inappropriate for me to comment specifically, but I'm very happy to comment uh, more generally. When one person holds power that the other person does not hold, then there is an unequal balance of power. And when that is the case, the person with the greater power carries greater responsibility for the actions between those two people. So when a pastor engages in a sexual relationship with someone in the congregation or in the community, there is a power imbalance there that is potentially being taken advantage of. And that's what makes it abuse, is the difference in power. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it makes sense to me as a former pastor. It's just something we always seem to understand, right? The Like you hold influence over people, whether you, you want to or not, right? So yes. it's just a matter yeah. of fact. I mean, and that's part of our, our church culture more generally, I think. We... We do put our pastors on pedestals, and then we assume that whatever that pastor does or says cannot really be questioned Mm. because of that. So we probably need to think more generally about church culture and the ways in which we offer authority to those who lead in churches. Do we start looking at things differently and instead yeah. let's mm. make this a group a community with no specific leadership yeah i mean there's lots of questions to be asked about mm. this if you i mean if you look at the new testament church we we actually don't really do things a lot like the new testament church did mm-hmm. in our um, church culture our evangelical church culture right now so we might want to rethink some of that but that's a massive culture change one of the things that Jamie, my coworker at MCC, and I spend a lot of time on is education, helping pastors uh, to become more sensitized to the kinds of power that they hold, helping pastors, because being a pastor is a very pressurized job. You have to be everything to everyone, and you actually never get to not be the pastor, even when you're at your kid's Little League baseball game or you're in the grocery store, or wherever you are. And so pastors land up not being very good at self-care, and they burn out. And because pastors are expected to be everything to everyone and aren't really given a lot of training about how to take good care of themselves, they're also vulnerable to stepping over the line into Mm -hmm. forms of power abuse as a way of meeting some needs because they're not entirely well. That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Yeah, there's there's that piece, which we really seminaries typically do not even offer courses that talk about uh, power, tending power, self-care, even just basic uh, abuse response when you've got someone in the congregation who's experiencing violence of some sort. And so pastors come into those roles with virtually no backgrounding or training in any of these things. And I'm not sure we should be entirely surprised then when they don't do it well. 
in those two years that you've been involved, what have you learned and what have you seen when it comes to abuse response and prevention in the church? Have you seen growth in the amount of abuse that's happening? Have you seen growth in clergy misconduct, um, any of that, or has it stayed consistent? Uh, I mean, I'm, I've been following this topic for a long time in terms of academic research. So this is much broader than simply Canada. There's lots of research coming out of Australia as well. There's the Catholic Church. I mean, there's, as you well know, this is turning out to be a really significant problem. And it's broader than the Christian religion. You you find this kind of thing in pretty much all religious contexts. So there's also something about religion that that seems to house this kind of a problem. So there's lots of you know complicated questions to be asked there. I I don't think we know yet if there's more of it happening than there used to be. What we know is that following the Me Too movement has come the Church Too movement, which has gained momentum because as people have come out with their stories, so too now people within the churches are coming out with their stories. Some of the stories we're hearing date back 30, 40, and 50 years. Sometimes uh, the perpetrator is no longer alive. So I don't think we know right now what the rates are right now compared to what they were 50 or 60 years ago. Beyond that, we know that this happened a lot even back then. Informally, anecdotally, I hear so many stories uh, within families about grandmothers who were abused or um, young boys who were abused or that date back a very long time. So this is a problem that's been ongoing for, for quite some time. It's sad that we're seeing so many people come forward, but it's really good too, right? Like I think the tide is shifting yes. in that regard where uh, it's for sure it's hard to come forward mm-hmm. and tell your mm-hmm. story, but it's really amazing to see people yep. finding the strength and doing it more and more. And what we see is also a ripple effect. When more people come forward, then more people find the courage to come forward. Yep, that's very true. And it, even that is complicated because – we know lots of people who choose not to come forward because coming forward and telling your story is often re-traumatizing. And sometimes victims land up experiencing more trauma from the telling uh-huh. than they do from the experience itself. So that too is quite complicated. So I'm very careful. Jamie and I are both very careful about not saying good for you. You came forward without also qualifying that by saying there may also be very good reasons why a woman or sometimes a man, uh, like there's men who are abused as well. I mean, this is far more females, but I I still want to say that. Um, There are good reasons not to go public with your story as well. And it doesn't mean you're not brave. It doesn't mean you're not courageous. And that's one of the really important things we do in our work is make sure that our work is victim centered, that, the person who's experienced harm gets to decide what should happen next. And if they don't want to come go public with their story, that's not lack of courage. There's lots of reasons why a victim may choose not to go public with their story. Nevertheless, those who do go public do help us to see and understand that we have a really significant problem that needs to be worked with. 
the reaction when people come forward in the church, it's always confusing to me because you get mm. a mixed reaction. Why yes, do you we do. feel that way? Oh, you know, when when you find out that your beloved pastor has done something like this, you don't want to believe it. So that's hard. It's 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 complicated. And it's also complicated in the sense that the range of the kinds of things that happen is really significant. Hmm. Um, not, not, not every circumstance should be using the word abuse or perpetrator. Many of them should. So it's complicated, right? Every, every journey is complicated and needs to be heard on its own terms. So that's also a part of our work. We also spend a lot of time thinking about restorative justice inside of this work, which is something that's fairly unique to MCC. MCC does a lot of restorative justice work in the prison system. And by restorative justice, we do not mean that the relationship between the perpetrator and the victim should be restored. Restorative justice is about restoring the victim and giving the perpetrator a chance to restore as well, hmm. like t- to return to greater wholeness and health. Um, whether the two of them ever restore the, I mean, typically they don't and nor should they, um, but that's up to the victim, whether that's going to happen or not. Another thing that we often uh, struggle with is, the Christian theology of forgiveness gets pulled out very quickly in these contexts. Yes. Lots of talk about, you know, forgiveness is the way forward. And um, that's, that actually causes further traumatization for the victim. When the victim, one of the first things that they hear is, well, how do you get towards forgiveness? There's so much work that has to be done before you can even start thinking about that. So that's another, and it's not, it's not that forgiveness isn't a deep, rich, complex theological concept. Goodness knows we all need it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but to pull it out as a way of solving this problem actually further aggravates the problem. And that's, Colleen, when you were saying, you know, some of the responses we get in the churches, that's, this is one of them. We're so quick to reach for the idea of forgiving without realizing that there's so much road to walk first. And sometimes you may not get to forgiving and maybe that's okay. Yeah. Or it looks very different than yes. those of us who haven't been harmed expect it to look like, right? Exactly. And, <laughs> and I, I think, we to say? yep, exactly. And that's, uh, that's wisely said. If we haven't walked that road, we actually don't know. Yeah. And it's not our place to call for forgiveness. Yeah, Um, that's part of that person's individual journey. And they'll get there when they get there. Yeah. You mentioned something really interesting too, the weaponizing forgiveness. And I don't know, that just made me think so often in the church, we weaponize doctrine. And I'm Mm. probably just as guilty of doing that to others, (laughs) you know, trying to get my way in a church business meeting or something. And yep, (laughs) you betcha. Card and yeah. Yeah. When when, When we don't hold our theologies and our beliefs with an open hand when we close our fist over them yeah they can become very dangerous 
This is such a big topic. We could probably do a two-hour show on this. Yeah, you probably <laughs> could. As we're coming to a close, tell us a little bit about some resources um, church leadership or congregants could get uh, mm. to help them think through and, and protect themselves from this ever happening or uh, having, unfortunately, to respond if it has happened yeah. in their congregations. Uh, well, our our website, abuseresponseandprevention.ca, has lots and lots of resources on it. Um, Jamie and I routinely respond to churches. We're very happy to walk along with a specific church to whatever degree they want, even if it's just a phone call or a Zoom meeting to get some advice. We also suggest that you have some good policies in place, and we have those kinds of resources available as well. Because when you have a policy and something happens, you can follow that policy Versus sort of reinventing the wheel yourself inside your own church. Mm. One of the other things that I think is really important to talk about here is the church is pretty skittish about talking about healthy sexuality. Yes. Mm. Uh, we our sexual our sexual conversations tend to uh, fixate around purity culture, which is problematic because much of our youth generation inside the churches is sexually active. And whether that's shocking or not, that is a fact. Pornography is now a form of sex education. Mm -hmm. So our expectations of what sex should look like in our youth generation is formed by those images. And the church doesn't lay anything healthier alongside of it. And so you become very vulnerable to someone being abusive with you because you're pretty used to seeing all kinds of toxic forms of sexuality. In fact, your main sex education has been that. So I really think that the church needs to stop circling around conversations about purity culture and start talking about healthy sexuality and healthy sexual development. We just need to be able to have a lot more frank conversations uh, with our youth, so that they are not vulnerable. You know, so our next generation is not as vulnerable to clergy abuse, sexual abuse, because yeah. they have a much better sense of boundaries and appropriate and inappropriateness. But, and this is much beyond the church. We we have a youth generation who whose sexual development is deeply and profoundly unhealthy because of our soft porn culture in a media more generally, and then of course our really significant pornography problems much of most pornography now that's downloaded is violent mm. and yeah. we know that lots of pastors have porn problems lots of youth have porn addictions we now know that porn actually forges neuropathway addictions mm -hmm. yeah so we very... we have a yeah we have a we have a really significant issues that we need to deal with that i really think education could go a long way toward reducing some of these kinds of problems by educating and equipping those who would potentially be victims. Sometimes that's how, you know, the more uncomfortable a conversation, the more important the conversation <laughs> yes. is to have, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I just did a pornography uh, education session with a youth group in the city. And um, there, there are ways to talk with youth about porn that help them to understand without moralizing it, like without making it a, you're a bad person, don't do this. But mm -hmm. instead saying, this is how 
this is forming you as a sexual being and it's actually harming you. You don't realize it in this moment, but it's causing you considerable harm. And if we could start talking about pornography that way, instead of just saying it's a sin, you're a bad person, don't do it because that isn't stopping it. Mm -hmm. But if, if the youth could understand the self harm that they're inflicting as they move deeper and deeper into porn, I, I think we would have a much better chance of getting ahead of that problem if we did it that way. But that's not typically what I hear churches doing. Start them young is what we need to do. You know, and, and youth groups and youth leaders and parents are hesitant to, to talk to their grade seven kid about mm. porn in these sorts of ways. But most kids have seen porn by the time they're 11 or 12. So we, we can be as skittish and prudish about that as we want to. They're already there. There's still so much to be learned for people who want to learn more about what you've been chatting with us about today or want to learn more about you. How can they go about doing that? Uh, you can gladly email me at uh, valhebert at mccmb.ca. I will uh, happily have a conversation with you or find you some resources or resource you myself. Jamie and I are always happy to, to go into churches and teach about healthy pastoral boundaries or pornography or healthy sexual education with, I mean, anything. Um, you know, we're, we're very happy to, to come in and, and do that. We are also collaborating right now with CMU, Canadian Mennonite University, to offer a course on the right use of power for pastors who are currently training. So uh, that's a collaboration that we're doing with CMU right now. So we're pretty excited about that. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Yes, I th- yes. thank you for caring about this, uh, for giving us some airtime. Um, really appreciate that. And thank you so much for joining us and for listening today. Don't forget to subscribe. We'll talk to you again on Connections.